Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Peter Oppenheimer joins us right now, Goldman Sachs Chief Global Equity Strategist. Peter, I usually have to deal with this by myself. I've got you with me today, and I appreciate that. Can you explain to Tom Keen? Can you explain to Tom Keen, please, who Gareth Bale is and why you might be happy very, very soon? Thank you. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone. Firstly, I think think just to correct, I think you're talking about Everton. But nonetheless, um, yes, you you found the one uh, Tottenham fan over here. Um, (laughs) Very, very concerned about the prospects for Bale. But... um, yeah, it's going to be a, a tricky, uh, a, a tricky thing for them to face. You know what's so important here, Peter Oppenheimer? Seriously, is maybe Gareth Bell can come in and save the day uh, for the Tots. But far more importantly, a huge part of this market needs to be saved if they're not Amazon and they're not Apple. And I love, love, love the phrase you've coined: the hope phase. What is the hope phase right now for investors and the huge body of people that don't own the high-flying techs? Well, firstly, what is the hope phase? You know, if you look at history of, of bear markets and bull markets, virtually every bull market does start during a recession after a period of falling prices when investors, for some reason, start to get more optimistic about the prospects for recovery. And that initial hope phase, the hope of recovery, tends to be reflected in quite explosive rises in stock prices, mainly driven by valuation expansion. And that's exactly what we've seen really since March. And I think it is consistent with this being the start of a new phase. What you say, though, is interesting is that this new phase, this new cycle, uh, is seeing the same leadership as we were seeing before, uh, with the technology companies and the growth companies continuing to outperform significantly Um, the old economy and the deep value parts of the market. But it's consistent with this ongoing shift to more negative real interest rates uh, and actually the disruption that we're seeing as a result of the technology companies changing the nature of many of these traditional businesses as the digital revolution continues. So I think strategically, we're in a new bull market phase. That's a good thing. But the secular trend is probably likely to be quite similar in terms of leadership. Peter, you've made the argument, though, that Europe doesn't have to be left for dead here, that this is not just the United States big tech story, that Europe has a role in all of this. Can you walk us through that, that argument that you've been making over the last several months? Yeah. Look, again, let's just look back for a moment. If we take the last cycle, the last decade or so, the period after the financial crisis, it was marked by very good returns in financial assets as rates came down. But the US was a massive outperformer of all equity markets. And the main reason for that, not the only one, the main reason was its exposure to the things that were doing very well, technology, whereas Europe, of course, had a massive exposure to the areas of the market that were really at the epicenter of the crisis. You know, it had about a quarter of its index in banks uh, and another 10 or 15% in the oil sector, for example. Now, if you roll things on to where we are today, Banks have fallen to about 6% of the index in Europe. Uh, Now you have technology being about twice the size of the oil sector. So while you don't have the same significant concentration of leaders in technology in Europe as you do have in the US, the market is becoming more growthy 
and it's becoming less value orientated. And what you have is a similar sort of style of, of concentration. You don't have the fang stocks, of course, but you have what we've described as the granolas, the top 10 or 11 companies in Europe that standing for the starting letter of each of their names. These are big companies which are cash generative, strong balance sheets in a combination of technology, healthcare and staples. And that's really, again, what the market is paying for in an environment of otherwise weak growth and very, very low rates. And I think that probably will continue. Grownovers? Is, did I get that right, Peter? Grownovers. Okay. Grenovers. All right. Well, that's a new one for me. <laughs> I will know. just say, how much do you expect European equities to outperform U.S. equities, say, over the next one, two years? We don't see significant outperformance. We just see much more similar performance. But I think that's an increasing case in itself for just more geographical diversification. You know, the last 10 years, you saw huge dominance of the U.S., um, and now I think you'll get much more similar returns across the regions, particularly in dollar terms, because we think that the dollar's weakness that we've seen uh, in the recent past will continue. So for dollar investors, there will be some benefit to diversification uh, from, the, from a currency perspective and also because the differences across these regions <clears throat> may narrow. And I would say again that we should be looking more at alpha opportunities now, where really are companies well, that can drive returns irrespective of the region. I'll give you an example just briefly. Our renewables basket, companies in Europe at the epicenter of the renewables revolution have actually outperformed the NASDAQ over the last couple of years. So there are pockets of growth that I think investors should right. be focused on outside of the US. Peter Oppenheimer, I, you went right where I wanted to go. You're reading my mind here on the alpha generation necessary right now. And what I want to talk about is Ray Dalio's interview yesterday with Eric Schatzker, and he just talked about literally blind diversification. I don't buy that for a single second. How does Peter Oppenheimer with David Costin, how do you define an appropriate diversification away from owning 300 stocks. What is that approach? Well, it, it's a great question. And I think it, 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 it uh, goes beyond just where you go for equities. Bear in mind that multi-asset funds have grown hugely in the last decade and been very successful. A 60-40 equity bond mix has generated one of the longest and strongest bull markets in history. And a good chunk of that, given that we're now at the zero bound, is likely to generate a very low return, if not a zero return. So moving up the risk curve is partly what these policies are doing. Within the context of equities, I think you need to sort of diversify out of the pure technology growth part of the market, or looking at how technology is evolving and, and, and entering into uh, medical technology uh, and uh, educational technology and environmental technology. And actually the environmental drivers of growth, we think are gonna be a really significant theme over the next 10 years or so. It's already really becoming a big focus here in Europe with the Green Deal, which is putting some money behind this idea, uh, but it's likely to broaden out and provide lots of growth opportunities. So I think that um, despite the challenges economically, uh, it is fair to say there are some real growth engines and opportunities that are still uh, uh, available for investors as they look uh, to diversify away from uh, the concentration of a very small number of technology names. Peter, great to catch up. Look forward to seeing you soon. Peter Oppenheimer there of Goldman Sachs. <laughs> 
To assist us with this, someone writing just wonderful on the American economy, Stephen Stanley of Amherst Pierpont. Stephen Stanley, how do you frame these retail numbers plus the revisions? Does it make you adjust your guesstimate of GDP? I'm going to take a tack that, that none of you have taken yet, and that's exactly opposite of what Neil was saying a few minutes ago, which is I think you have to pay attention to the levels. And the thing about retail sales, and this is an amazing uh, development, but retail sales in July were already higher than the pre-pandemic levels. So we had already more than recovered what we lost in the lockdown. So it was going to be tougher to get big gains in August. So, yes, it's a disappointment at the margin, but the fact is that retail sales have recovered amazingly uh, since the lockdown. Do you agree with Neil Dutta, Stephen, that the U.S. economy looks strong enough and has enough momentum to not need an additional round of fiscal support? Well, I think it's interesting. Yeah, largely I would agree with what Neil said. I think that um, it's interesting because everybody was saying that the economy was going to fall off the table if those benefits expired, and, and of course it didn't. Um, and the markets also were supposedly dependent on seeing that continued uh, fiscal largesse, and we didn't get it, and the markets have kind of moved on at this point. So I think if we do need some level of support, I think. It would be nice to get some level of bonus benefits. You know, it would be nice for companies to be able to go back and do a second round of PPP loans, um, you know, maybe something for state and local governments. But I don't think that the economy, uh, the economic recovery absolutely depends on it the way that a lot of folks were thinking a few months ago. So, Stephen, you agree with the administration that this is a self-sustaining recovery that doesn't require, necessarily require, another fiscal aid package? I guess in the aggregate, yes, although I think they're, you know, the way that the Democrats are looking at it is, is not wrong either, which is to say that even if the broader economy is doing okay, there's still people that need help. Um, and, and I wouldn't disagree with that. I think, you know, getting help to people who are unemployed, um, you know, getting help to businesses who are still having trouble, uh, small businesses that are still having trouble, does make sense at this point. Um, but, I, but I don't think that the broad macroeconomy needs a 2 or $3 trillion, you know, fiscal booster shot right now just to continue uh, growing. Steve, the, the whole idea here of half full, half empty, Chairman Powell's going to have to juggle this today. How do you expect he will express the uncertainty that attends this meeting? I think the Fed has taken the, the, the Fed is somewhere beyond half empty. Um, you know, the Fed looks at every situation and tries to find the, the, the black lining in the silver cloud at this point. Um, and, and I guess you could argue that that's probably the right thing to do, because if things turn out better than expected, then it's great. And the Fed obviously can handle that. Um, but the Fed has definitely been braced and expecting the worst uh, since the pandemic broke. And I don't really see any reason to change that. I think the Fed feels that they need to support the economy in every way they can. And one of the most important ways they can do that is by assuring the markets that they're there and that they're going to provide support. And the markets have certainly gotten that message uh, with an exclamation point. And you've seen that, obviously, in stocks and in other risk assets. I like how you put that, with an exclamation point, which brings me to asset bubbles. Do you get the sense the Fed's worried at all about those elevated prices? I don't. I I don't. And I don't think the Fed has come to grips with the role that they've played in creating um, inflated asset prices over the last several cycles. Um, and until they, um, you know, rethink that, uh, we're probably just going to see, you know, kind of rolling asset bubbles uh, 
every cycle. Um, you know, the Fed is, is still of the view that they should be easy until consumer price inflation takes off, and it certainly hasn't over the last 20 years or so. And so I think that they're fully on board with the idea that they can be as easy as they, uh, as they please for as long as they want, and if we get high asset prices, that's fine. Stephen, I asked this earlier on this morning. Chairman Powell is aware of this. He's even talked about it. He did at the Economic Club in New York several years ago when he first became the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Something's changed. What changed? He first had that market test. You remember, I think it was the back end of 2018, bang, he backed away. Why did that change for him? Yeah, it's interesting. He's, he's gone, a very, he's gone over, through a very rapid uh, evolution over his term as, as chairman. Um, I, I think that he's, uh, I, I think that the Fed Listens um, tour really had an impact on the way the Fed thinks about things. I think they sat down and they listened to people who normally aren't, listened to with regard to monetary policy, uh, people in low-income communities, um, you know, uh, community activists and people like that, and they have taken that on board, and it's, uh, it's a very different Fed. It's almost like a social justice Fed rather than kind of the traditional thought of a, a green eye shade, you know, um, someone that just is looking at numbers and not thinking about uh, some of the more social aspects of things. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, I think, remains to be seen. But um, it's, the Fed is very different, I think, in, in the way that they approach things today than they were even a few years ago. Stephen, it's great to catch up. Really, really great. Stephen Stanley there of Amherst Pierpont Securities. Right now, and this has been such a joy for us over the last number of months, the Lieutenant Governor of the Empire State. We've had huge response worldwide to Kathy Hochul and her straight talk, of course, serving with Governor Cuomo as well. Kathy, as you know, the Empire State is rather large, and we're going to give bragging rights to your Buffalo. Buffalo doing better than good as the Bills clearly trouncing the Jets and the Giants except they're doing it to empty stadiums, and that's a metaphor for the entire state recovery. How urgent is it to fill the restaurants and to fill uh, the Bills stadiums as they defeat Miami next week? Well, I'm concerned about people from New York, Buffalo, traveling to Miami, which is a, continues to be a hotspot. So uh, no one loves the Buffalo Bills more than I do, and the fans of Western New York are fanatical about it, but... I don't recommend anyone travel there and watch them in person. I mean, the right. safest place during a pandemic is still to watch it at home. But in terms of restaurants and other uh, openings, we are making some slow progress toward that. Indoor dining will be allowed in New York City starting on September 30th. And every business will have to make their own calculation as to whether or not at a 25% capacity that, that it makes sense for them to start to do that or just wait this out. So those are still challenges, but I, I, the fact that they're playing at all, Tom, I think that's progress. I mean, there was a few months ago I was talking to the owners of the Bills and, like, we weren't sure we were going to have any games. So right. let's just take these incremental success stories as they come, knowing that the pandemic is still very much with us. What is the urgency of your and Governor Cuomo's need to get salvation from Washington? It's, it's, it's rapidly sped up, hasn't it? Oh, we spoke a couple weeks ago. It was intense. Now it's intense on steroids. I mean, we have to get that money. We are in a desperate situation where we have to get money out to schools that are spending an inordinate amount of money to make the school setting safe for kids. We have to get it out to health care workers, child care workers, who's watching the kids. We need to give support for that. First responders. I mean, 
there is so much money that needs to come to the states. We can get out to the localities, get it out to the schools. And if Washington does not do that, that'll be one of the greatest derelictions of duty in the history of this country. We are still waiting. This is our equivalent of storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, flash floods, and fires all at once hit the state of New York, and indeed the rest of the nation needs this help as well. The time is now. What are you waiting for? Kathy, in the meantime, you've got employers trying to bring workers uh, back to the office. J.P. Morgan in particular has been pretty vocal about this. And yet yesterday, Bloomberg reporting that one of J.P. Morgan's workers did get diagnosed with COVID. They had to send some workers home. And this really speaks to the concern about a second wave of COVID as workers start getting back to the office. What are you expecting and what's the threshold for another shutdown or additional closures, uh, dialing back of the reopening? with respect to how much the virus cases will be allowed to climb? We are not planning to dial back the reopening unless the situation becomes very extreme. I and mean, what I'm talking about, we have been managing a 1% or less infection rate the entire state of New York, and that includes New York City, for the last 38 days. That's extraordinary. If we continue to engage in the same behavior we're doing, people wearing masks, people staying apart, and this is a message for our NYU friends in Washington Square. Stop gathering. You're just only making, you're creating a situation where you're going to be sent home. Don't do that. If, if people do it smartly and from the lessons we learned before, we did not know that a mask could make such a huge difference or social distancing could make such a big difference. So that's why if there is a second wave or whether these are individual cases popping up, we're ready for it. We, we can handle it. We know what to do now. And there's more treatments for people. So I don't foresee that we'll ever be in such a dire situation. We want to reopen this economy. We want to get it going in a safe, smart way. But people have to get back to work. Yeah. That's why we're continuing to make sure the MTA is safe so people can take public transportation. We're encouraging people to do it, but follow the protocols we've had in place since March, which is the only reason why we have the lowest infection rate in the nation. How much, Kathy, are you thinking about the other side of this and how you're going to entice businesses to stay in New York, especially if you do have to raise taxes in order to pay for uh, some of the deficits we're experiencing now? Well, we have not said we're raising taxes in the state of New York. Uh, that is uh, very clear. We think that if the federal government is saying that they don't have enough to support us, they can raise taxes, but we don't want to have New York. Uh, we work very hard to get rid of a high-tax state reputation. That was one of our, our administration's first priorities because we know that we don't want to drive the employers away because people need to have good jobs in our city and in our state. It's that simple. So we're not looking to raise taxes but we are looking to get that assistance from Washington. It's one one-time infusion of money that can help us get back on our feet because there is no recovery, as I've said on your show before, without a national. There's no national recovery without the recovery of New York State. It's just a statement of fact. Lieutenant Governor, before we let you go, if you don't get that age, you've got to make some tough decisions. And if it's not tax hikes, what is it? Well, we're going to have to figure that out. I mean, we are still focused on Washington right now, and our legislature and the governor will be having conversations about what Plan B is. But I also do believe that as we start you know, recharging the economy, the revenues will start coming back. We've had a hit of $14 billion in lost revenues. We have to start finding ways to bring back businesses to generate that, that income, not just for the employees, but also for the state. And I was on a call yesterday with the, uh, the leadership of NYC and company talking about our tourism industry and how hard they've been hit, but 
I was just reminding everyone, there is only one New York City. People will still continue to come back. And in the meantime, we're asking New Yorkers to come down and explore New York City. The lines are not long. Uh, talk about a staycation. We have 19 million New Yorkers. Uh, let's start letting them know this is the lowest infection rate. You come to New York City, have a fabulous vacation, open up your wallets, go see some of the sites, and we'll figure this out. You know, we're New Yorkers. We always figure these things out. We've been down before, and we are coming back. Lieutenant Governor, appreciate the sentiment and your time this morning. Thanks for giving it to us. Kathy Hochul there, New York, Lieutenant Governor. We have been waiting. We bust his chops at Davos, as Francine and I know to do. When will there be a new book? What's interesting about Daniel Jurgen is there are books that are done not quickly, but in a more light tone, his wonderful The Quest. And they're the books that you have to carry around campus just to look cool. That would be the prize, definitive on oil and, of course, commanding uh, heights. How about a new prize? How about a new commanding heights? The new map. Where, Dan Jurgen, good morning. Where did the title come from? Good morning. Well, thank you, Tom and Francine. First, I've been waiting for a long time to be able to come on with you about the, the new map, my new book. So it's a real pleasure to be with you today. Um, I thought it's, you know, the landscape has changed in so many different ways. It's changed in terms of energy. It's changed in terms of geopolitics. And that's what I meant by the new map. And it really started when I was just looking at how trade flows and energy had changed. And then it became clear that this was a, a, a metaphor uh, for uh, these big changes we're living through in the world today. To the compare and contrast of the commanding heights, which folks, everyone knows, I just say shut up and read it. Uh, to compare it to commanding heights, you talk about the fragmentation of our globalization. Can that change with a new president of the United States, whether it's in 48 days or four years from now? Uh, it can change. I think it will it'll be kind of partly putting the pieces back together in relationships with uh, uh, alliances, alliance partners, allies, and also uh, international institutions. But I think that the kind of uh, sense that uh, one world just flowing very easily together, trade flowing, I think that's past us. And we're still going to see, even with a new administration, if it's a Biden administration, it's a bipartisan uh, critique now of China. So I think that notion of what I call in the new map, the WTO consensus of integration in the world economy is would be under pressure who's ever president. Um, Dan, good morning and congratulations on the book. You, you explore two themes that are really crucial to everything that we also try to do here on Bloomberg Surveillance, which is trying to understand how the position of the U.S. as one of the, the major global oil producers because of shale has really transformed this market. And on the one hand, this kind of new Cold War, as you say, between um, you know, some of our Western countries and Russia and China, what has been the most significant development in the last 50 years for oil? Well, I think the, the biggest development is, of course, the shale revolution, which took the United States from being a has been a finished. Uh, we're done with it. Oil producer to being the world's largest oil producer. And it still is even today. And that's changed the dynamic. It used to be OPEC versus non OPEC is a kind of framework for for decades. Uh, but now it's really the big three, uh, the U.S., uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia and how those three interact really does much to shape uh, the future of the oil market and, and the economic so issues about. around it. 
Yeah, and we talk a lot about you know renewables and climate change and a, a greener tomorrow. So, yeah, what's at risk most for for the shale revolution? Is it COVID and demand, or is it actually these new renewables? Well, I think uh, COVID and demand, I, I think shale was already running into a, a need for a second revolution, as I call it, in terms of its relationship with investors. And COVID has been a real crisis for it. And you see it in the terms of uh, the degree to which budgets have been cut um, by the shale producers, 50, 70 percent from what they were doing. So I think it is a kind of survival mode right now, and will be the, in that mode. It'll be in that mode till next year. Uh, wind and solar you know, actually don't compete directly with oil. They compete with natural gas. And those that's where the decisions will be made. On, on oil, it, you know, if you look at China, China's oil demand is back to where it was last year. Uh, its air traffic actually in China is higher this August than it was in the August of last year. So I think it's too soon to look at this current terrible COVID situation and generalize about what the what the future will be. But I think uh, clearly renewables are going to become a much bigger part of, uh, of the picture. And uh, we're going to see more investment going into that. Daniel Jurgen, part of what we have is the great American cliche. And in our diplomacy, in your most delicate chapter, that is our many lines in the sand. How did America get to the comedy of drawing lines in the sand? Well, really, the lines in the sand started, of course, after World War I, when the Ottoman Empire collapsed and the British and the French uh, started doing That's it. That's on page, I got to interrupt. That's on page 482 of the prize. Continue. Okay. Well, it's much, much earlier in the new map, much earlier. Uh, you're almost at the last page numbers of the new map. It's a shorter book. Uh, but I think what, you know, we had this really historic development yesterday, which was in some ways understated in, in news coverage because of everything else that's happening, which is the new relationship between the UAE and uh, Israel. And that reflects a kind of a change in the map of drawing a line. And there are many reasons for it. And one reason is the Gulf countries are concerned that the U.S. Uh, or they see the U.S. kind of backing away from the region, uh, particularly because uh, we're much more secure in our energy than we were, were before because of uh, domestic development, which has uh, just transformed the global oil market. Dan Jurgen with us, and we are thrilled he could join us here in celebration of the new map. It is readable. He says, that's not the thickness of the prize. My wrist hurt for six weeks carrying the prize around uh, campus. How about the new map here from Dan Jurgen? This has been hugely anticipated. And again, the reach and the scope and scale leaves you speechless. Daniel, in the book, you basically say that we're in an era of strategic competition with great power rivalry that could look a lot like a new Cold War. What does it, you know, what are the hotspots that you're looking for? And what does it mean, for example, for Nord Stream 2? Well, I think it, you know, you can look at it. It's basically in terms of relationships with uh, China and Russia. And the notion of that WTO consensus that China's integration with the world economy being good for everybody is over. And you see it in the language of both uh, the Chinese military documents, U.S. military documents, strategic competition, great power rivalry, and defense budgets are being oriented towards that. Where are the hot spots? Well, clearly one area of, uh, of risk is the South China Sea, which China claims is its own territorial waters, and the United States and other navies say no freedom of seas. And there, in, in the new map, I describe several near collisions of naval ships that have happened. And so if you're saying where could an accident happen, 
that's one place, and uh, prudence is required there. You mentioned Nord Stream 2. That certainly is a very dramatic uh, case study of uh, the new situation where the U.S. government is seeking, has already put sanctions to try and stop Nord Stream 2, the $11 billion pipeline that's almost weeks away from being finished and more sanctions to come. Germany uh, rebelling against sanctions being put on the project, but the situation changed somewhat by the Navalny poisoning, a kind of reconsideration going on. But I think really since 2013, a kind of emerging Cold War with Russia, and also, and this really hit me while I was writing the new map, a, a kind of Cold War with China, a different kind because the Soviet Union was not a major factor in the world economy. China, of course, is a very major factor. And one thing you start to see is some countries saying, we don't want to have to choose between the U.S. and China. So I think that's the big geopolitical issue uh, for the next uh, decade or two. But, Daniel, do you think that the Navalny poisoning will actually force Germany to reassess their position on Nord Stream 2? Well, I think it's still up in the air as to whether that will happen. You've certainly had some prominent German spokesmen saying it shouldn't go ahead. Uh, consequences, if it doesn't go ahead, what happens? I think one thing to keep in mind, people will say, well, this is going to stop Russian gas from coming into Europe. About 35 percent of Europe's gas comes from Russia, 10 percent total energy, that is. And if it doesn't come through Nord Stream 2, it's going to come through other pipes into Europe anyway, because it's competitive although LNG is also competitive and it's what gives the Europeans flexibility. The other thing that people haven't paid attention to is that Russia is going to be a big LNG power, along with the U.S., along with Qatar and Australia. And so we might see a day where Russian LNG is competing with Russian pipeline gas in Europe, which it's in nobody's playbook right now. Dan Jurgen, we're going to have you back in our next half hour after we speak with Mr. Guria. Dan Jurgen, just quickly here on what you were just talking about. Are we in an age of oversupply of hydrocarbons? Um, we're in a, a year of oversupply of hydrocarbons. When you look at the amount of the budget cuts by the companies, and then you start to say, well, if there's decent economic recovery, are we going to, could we have tight markets in two or three years is not out mm -hmm. of the question, although it seems a million miles away right now. Well, we are in celebration of Dan Jurgen's The New Map, and I can only say, red with the commanding heights, it is absolutely extraordinary. Joining us now is Angel Gurria, the OECD Secretary General. Mr. Gurria, as always, thank you so much for giving us a bit of your time. Are you a bit more optimistic about the economy? I know thank it's you. still some, you know, pretty painful fall, but are you more optimistic about the economy because lockdown was eased sooner than not expected? As, not as pessimistic. Not as pessimistic. Not as pessimistic. You... It's not about being optimistic. It's going to be a sea of red all over the place. We're still going to have the contraction that is the greatest since the OECD was created 60 years ago, but not as bad as we thought, mostly because right. of the uh, rather timely and very big uh, injection of resources. Okay, but do you also see actually productivity and things restarting you know, quicker? Does it mean that we'll have less scarring? The problem here is that uh, this V-shaped reaction or V-shaped recovery is not going to happen. What we had is it dropped like a lead balloon, then it rebounded somewhat, and 
after June, we were a little bit enthusiastic, maybe too much. And July, August, it tapered off naturally. It was going to happen. Now we're going to see the reality. Now we're going to see the hard numbers. We're going to be counting uh, literally all the uh, casualties. Uh, and that includes, of course, uh, not only jobs, but also SMEs. We're going to see if the tourism uh, can recover and we're going to see whether investment can recover. We are having investment still below where we started, uh, you know, at the end of 2019. And it was already under pressure. Remember, trade and investment were already under pressure. We're already negative to flat, uh, but slightly negative to flat because of the trade tensions, because of all the uh, pressure that uh, countries were putting among themselves, you know, China and the United States and Europe, etc. Well, now we are in a situation where then, then COVID struck. And of course, that makes it worse. So, um, as I said, we're going to see a recovery in 2021, but it's still going to be below the level of 2019. It's that bad. Okay. Yeah, and you said it. It's less pessimistic, but still pessimistic. There are a number of emerging markets that you've actually had to downgrade further. I'm looking at South Africa. I'm looking at India, Argentina, and Mexico. What happened? Well, they have been uh, hardest hit. You have uh, cases like Argentina, which already had the, 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 the financial problems before. They were dealing with the IMF and they were dealing with their creditors before. So uh, it's a kind of a continuation. But in the case of South Africa or the case of Mexico, or the case of Brazil, et cetera, what you are having is a very hard hit by the pandemic, among other things, because the, um, the structures, the health structures uh, were uh, not as strong as they were uh, in uh, many of the countries in the West. Dr. Gurria, you know we've squeezed you, we squeezed you in rather around Daniel Jurgen and his wonderful book, The New Map. I want you to talk to me about the scenario chart on the cover of the OCD website about the new map of joblessness. How do you and Laurence Boone perceive the idea of furlough to permanent unemployed, the rationalization of a lesser labor share worldwide? What we're saying is, number one, don't take away the support. Don't take away the relief too fast. Maintain that relief because you're talking about tens of millions of people who today are not officially registered as unemployed, but because they are benefiting from either chômage partiel in France or Kurzarbeit in Germany or the corresponding mechanism in the UK, the United States, etc. <clears throat> but the question is, uh, let's continue. Uh, of, of course, you know, the, the Germany just announced that they will continue the support throughout 2021. Not every country is going to be in a position to do that. But we have to okay. continue this because... <clears throat> We are now going to be in a tapering off of the situation, and we're going to see that unemployment is going to taper off, unfortunately, at a very, very 
high level. With your North American expertise, Daniel Gurry, I'm going to ask you this question. We're going to rip up the script here right now. Daniel Jurgen defined in Commanding Heights the previous capitalism. He's talking about the new map now of a disrupted future. Why can't the United States be more like those societies you're talking about who are comfortable in providing support in a global natural disaster? The United States is a very dynamic society, and at the same time, it is 50 societies. Uh, at the same time, you know, every country is, is, is a, every, every state is a different country in the world. It's the size of many of the countries uh, in Europe. And then even within those states, you have uh, very large cities which have their own uh, way of doing things and their own, uh, their own uh, bias uh, towards doing things. So it's very difficult to put it all together. But I think one of the lessons of the pandemic is precisely that we can pick up a lot of the things that work well in many of the other countries and apply them uh, to our own countries because they make sense. Because things like masks, things like distancing, things like avoiding crowds, these things, washing your hands constantly, these things work. And actually, those countries that did it better, plus technology now about, uh, uh, about the tracking and the tracing and massive testing, 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 that's going to uh, hold us until we develop a vaccine uh, or medicine or both. Thank you so much. Angel Gurria there, the OECD Secretary General. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.